welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome back to the Proper Mental Podcast. This is episode 122 and my guest this week is Joanna Fortune, who is a psychotherapist and attachment specialist who specializes in child and adolescent psychotherapy and she has over 20 years experience working with children and families. She's the author of four best-selling books and she hosts her own podcast, 15 Minute Parenting. And there's a couple of reasons really why I wanted to reach out to Joanna to have a bit of a chat. One of them is her work revolves around parents and families and children and as a father of two um, I think a lot about my children's mental health you know I think a lot about how my role in their experience and how that's going to affect them later on particularly uh, myself as someone who has struggled with mental illness over the years you know how is my behavior and my mindset going to impact my kids and I wanted to kind of explore that a little bit but also because a lot of these conversations I have on proper mental and we talk about the things that lead up to people being not mentally well in whatever way that might be. Well, there are a lot of stuff that comes from childhood and there's a lot of stuff that comes from how we learn to feel and express our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and how we see ourselves in the world and how we show up in the world and how we build this identity around what and who we are. All that stuff comes from childhood, right? So I wanted to get some ideas from Joanna about that stuff, about how we can start to think about it as grown-ups, as parents, and how we can keep better eye on our children's mental health and support them in learning more about this stuff. And we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, but something that really, really jumped out to me is that a lot of Joanna's methods and techniques about supporting our kids and looking after our kids can be completely applied to adults. There was so much stuff there and she was like, oh, you could say this to your kid or you could, um, you know, do this activity with your kids. And I was thinking, never mind my kids, I could do that with myself. I could learn to explore myself. And, you know, I think that's really important. So I think whether you are a, a parent or not, whether you plan to be a parent or not, I think it's irrelevant. I think there's a lot of stuff in this episode that people will find really, really relevant. Obviously, emotions and thoughts and feelings affect all of us. And if we can understand them and how they fuel our behavior and how we feel about ourselves, then our mental health is going to be a lot better it's a wonderful conversation we talk about all those things i've just mentioned we talk a lot about play and it's important and why grown-ups feel it's so difficult to play when children find it so easy but also how we can connect with each other and ourselves and our children through the art of play we talk about building self-esteem we talk about working on emotional fluency we talk about the importance of boredom so yeah there's a lot there for everyone and I hope you really enjoy this episode because I really enjoy this episode Joanna is wonderful she has so much knowledge at her fingertips it amazed me I'd ask her one short thing and I'd get this just this complete wonderful answer and it was a real pleasure to speak to her so yeah I'm very very grateful for her time I've put links to her website and her social media and all that stuff in the episode notes. I mentioned before she's got four best-selling books. They're about parenting, different aspects, different age groups, and the latest book is called Why We Play. All of that stuff's in there. There's a link to her TED Talk in the episode notes as well. 
all the usual stuff to get hold of me. That's all in there. Go and check out what I do. I'm in all the usual places. And if you could take two minutes to review this episode or any other episodes, I'd be really grateful. And this is episode 122 with Joanna Fortune. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, and my guest this week is Joanna Fortune. How are you, mate? I'm good, really good. Joining you on World Book Day. World Book Day, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what a what, good day uh, to talk about mental health and everything in between. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Are your children of an age where they're dressing up, Joanna? Where they'll still accept that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So it was full, full throttle costume immersion here this morning. So it was fantastic fun, yeah. Uh-huh. we um we live around like the corner from our school we're dead lucky so we can just walk in every day and I always love world book day because it's so much fun walking in okay. and from all these different things from different directions and people dressed up and um yeah it's always like a really cool day it's I, I lovely really like it. it's really magical and to see that kind of creativity and imagination brought to life and I actually think it's really good for us adults you know to be around that magic yeah definitely it, it, it's probably like a really good starting point actually for some of the things yeah. we're going to talk to talk about today because my children they've been gearing up to this so mine are six and five right so they've been okay. gearing up to this for quite a while they're quite excited about it they plan their outfits we had to make some of it and they helped us yeah. with that really excited and then must they even like had them on yesterday because they were uh ready for it but then today come day comes around and my son gets suited and booted in his uh in his outfit yeah. you know he was going as a moon face from the faraway tree from the brilliant oh yeah. great costume okay. yeah so we had this like big thing on his head and yeah. all that um but then like straight away he was like he said to me dad I'm a bit scared about going to school today right because it's it's suddenly it's different you know and it was really really interesting how they to see that one minute he's completely in the moment and he in his little head he is moon face from the faraway tree running up and down the living room and then all of a sudden he's like oh I've got to step out the door and that slight level of self-consciousness and and we have Isadora Moon who left the the house here this morning in full accessorized to the hilt Isadora moon mode and thrilled with herself but we also walked to school so halfway up the road she's like are you sure it's today are you are you sure other kids will be dressed up and it's this it's when they're and she's very very literally the same age five turning six and it's that sudden awareness that my world inside my home feels one way and it's very safe and anything goes and everything is accepted about me I can truly be me but when I cross into the the outside world I have to deal with other variables and factors I have to deal with other kids how how they think of me or moreover what I think they think of me which is nearly worse you know because there's no reins on that that's limitless worrying and you know there is that little hesitation of this was great at home, but am I accepted outside of the out of our fit, safe family home in the outside world? And that starts happening for children really quite young. I mean, the days when they'll go around the supermarket with you in full princess or dino regalia and they like, obviously I'm a dinosaur. Like there, there's no reason to question this. And all too soon they're like, but I'm actually not. And are people laughing at me? And is this something? And that self-consciousness that comes in. So I really do. I love days like World Book Day because it really gives kids an opportunity to 
suspend reality for a day and to really kind of enter into somebody else's life and thinking and world. And it's super for perspective taking. It's super for imagination. It's super for just putting down those constraints of self-consciousness once they get to the art. And I love it. I think it's the day that I'm always going to be early for school because I want to see everybody's costume, you know, (laughs) enjoying it arguably way too much and more than anyone else. But it's lovely when they see each other and you can see that relief, that kind of, oh, you're stressed up too. And then it's all great, beautiful chaos, beautiful chaos and madness. But I do think that that's happening for children quite young, that self and other awareness, which of course is part of early childhood development. But it's quite difficult when you see it play out in front of you. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I, I suppose it's it's sometimes it's quite nice to have these these small challenges for them to lean into right because it's always that fine balance like you can't have everything too easy like life doesn't work like that but then of course we don't want to be like scaring our children half to death in a way that's going to affect them right so we have these small little challenges and something like we like to do with our kids is now he's done this and he's gone in and he's enjoyed it well like next time he feels like this we can say to him do you remember when you were moon face you know we can remind them of the times exactly and I, I think there's something so important in what you said there because it goes against every parental instinct so intellectually we know that's right but emotionally and that's what's activated when our kids are stressed your whole parental bear system comes online and it's like oh no I am going to jump in here with my fix and change agenda I am going to rescue this situation I don't want a moment of struggle for you and it's so naturally protective but actually what we do is we sabotage their experience to develop the capacity to master tension rousing experiences and we can't run that gauntlet out in the world for them you know if they're with us we can help and guide and support but there's huge portions of the day and that only increases once they hit preschool and beyond it increases steadily where they're going to have hiccups they're going to have challenges we're hoping these are at the mild to moderate level but what we don't want is our children going I have an uh uh-oh feeling and I don't know what to do with it because I'm not with my parent so I have to hold this as best I can all day until I get home to you and then you'll fix it for me. But actually I'm sitting in unbearable tension for the day and goodness knows what that bubbling emotional arousal, how I'm going to behave. I might explode. I might act. It's going to make it hard for me to concentrate. It's going to make peer interaction challenging. Much better for children that we Again, we're talking about mild to moderate here. If your child is having extreme distress, they definitely need the stress signal and the parent involvement. But where possible that we listen to what they say, we can reflect back to them. It gives us a bit of thinking space, but it also gives them a chance to say, no, that's not what I said. You've just put a whole lot of projection in there. And then to say the important phrase, is there something you want me to do? Because so often our children will say, no. I'm okay. I'll deal with it. And then you got to sit in your hands. You got to bite your tongue. You got to just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you got to let that happen. And it doesn't mean in a few days, Tom, that we don't go back and say about that thing. Is it still okay? <laughs> Is there anything I could do now? But I think we have to bear witness to the struggle because then we let them know you are having a hard time, but you're not having it alone. I'm here with you and I'll stay with you until you can find your way through it. But I know you can do this because then they learn to master tension rousing experiences. Then they learn that, okay, I've got to sort this out. I've got to do something. I can handle this. And they've got us behind them going, I got you. I think children know when they can lean into us, they learn to stand on their own. 
Yeah, that's a really lovely balance. You know, that's a really, really lovely balance. Because I was thinking then that probably the the other end of that would be it's World Book Day. You're faffing with the costumes. They don't want to get ready. Yeah. Packing the bags, getting out the door. We're always late. And then, you know, my son says to me, you know, oh, but dad, I feel a bit scared. And then I could go, um, you know, ah, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, and minimizing and dismissing. Oh, yeah, yeah. completely like unvalidate his experience. Mm. Right. The thing that he's going through. And that's kind of the opposite end of of that situation. It is. But it also it doesn't help. And I think I think that's so relatable. And it's such a good example. But it could also be any given school morning when you're trying to get (laughs) books, bags, hockey sticks, sports kits, lunch boxes, homework out the door with various children on time. And one of them is having the bottom. You go, not now not now I have no bandwidth for this you're like you're actually fine you're fine this is not an issue into the car and go if and I'm going to say when when that happens I think if we come back later and go do you know this morning you were having a big feeling and I rushed you and I've been thinking about that today and now we do have time so let's sit down and give that we can always go back and do repair after that but when we minimize and dismiss our kids worries we don't reassure them we teach them not to bring those feelings to us because what they hear is, oh, you don't, you don't want to hear this. It's not, it's actually not okay to bring this to you. So I'll just keep this to myself actually. And it's not that they suddenly feel more confident or assured or stronger. It's that they stop telling us and that's not what we want. So as parents, you know, we are not oracles in spite of what the internet will tell us. Okay. We are not oracles. We are not supposed to have all the answers because it's really good to model for our children that sometimes, I don't know, is an answer. And it's okay not to know everything because it's an opportunity to discover, explore, wonder, imagine, create, and find our way to some understanding together. I think that's a really important life lesson. I, not just for children. I think we could all do with that, that we're not supposed, we live in a society that's increasingly unforgiving of mistakes. And actually it's, it sounds a bit twee to say mistakes are how we learn, but actually mistakes are how we learn. And it's how we go. Yeah, that was not my finest moment. I made a mistake. I was clumsy in how I expressed that. I regret it. And I'd like to make repair. I'd like to say, sorry, I've learned from this. And here's what I'm going to do going forward. That's how it's supposed to work. And there's huge resilience in that word, which is a little bit of a bugbear for me, the word resilience, because I think it's misused all the time. I think we throw it around very casually, especially around children, where we say, Oh, children are resilient. They'll be fine. Sure, children are resilient. I mean, it's like there's this special place that Teflon coats them and we put them out in the world and everything just slides off. That's not a thing. That doesn't happen. Any of us are resilient when we are resourced to cope with the stress in our life. So if my resources are bigger than the stress I'm dealing with, great, I'm resilient. But When life throws me a curveball that I didn't see coming or is outside the realm of typical experience for me or is just too much and maybe the stress is bigger than my resources, I'm not resilient in that instance. And if I generally have good resourcing, I'll have a wobble when that happens and I'll have to kind of go, oh, I'm not coping well with this at all. And I'll maybe be able to find my way back to other strategies that have worked in other situations. But if that's a rolling experience where the stress in my life is always bigger than my resources to cope, then I, it's not that I 
there's something wrong with me and I, I wasn't there when they were handing out the resilience badges. It's just that my autonomic nervous system is now wired to travel pathways of protection. I'm highly defended and ready to react and got to keep myself safe. So I'm always like a little emotional meerkat scanning the environment for signs that I'm right to feel the way that I do. Whereas if I'm resourced to cope, I will actually be traveling those pathways of connection. Yeah, I'm having a blip, but you know what? I'll get through it. It's context specific. I can tell you what's going on. And when the context shifts, I'll return to a resting state that is manageable for me. I can maintain myself in a level of optimal arousal most of the time, mostly well, most of the time, because that's life is not we're not going to cruise through life. Because, I mean, in one way, you go, gosh, really, it'd be lovely. It'd be kind of dull, though, wouldn't it? it we're just kind of going straight flatlining through life where there's no excitement and drama and hiccups. There's a reason we like all that stuff, usually when it's happening to someone else. But there's a reason because actually it gives us that kind of surge of adrenaline and cortisol and excitement. And it lets us know, I know what to do when I'm in a dangerous situation. And it's no harm that I'm reminded of that. But that's when I'm in a dangerous situation. If I live in the dangerous situation, what is life-saving and adaptive out there becomes maladaptive and life-limiting because I, I, that's not a place any of us are supposed to be all the time. So I think we need to be very careful about what we mean when we talk about kids being resilient. And if we really want them to be, then, and I mean from parents, educators, government, policymakers, societal level, we need to resource children resource their parents resource schools resource extracurricular community-based activities we need to resource to ensure we're raising resilient kids yeah sure it's always um, a really fascinating thing to me that whole thing about children being um you know super resilient because you do hear yeah. it so much right oh so much especially after covid it was like the tagline send them back to school they're resilient they'll be fine <laughs> yeah. i always think like, not true it's not true and even if we did use resilient in that way right and apply it to our children just because someone is super resilient doesn't mean they should have to be right so that's the first agree, thing i always agree think. entirely and the second thing I think, are children really resilient or do they just have absolutely no say because we're making their decisions, right? So if it's me and something's happening I don't like, as a grown-up, I can say, excuse okay. me, I'm not doing this, I'm off, you know? Yeah. You can't do that when you're a kid, right? And I Because you have so little control in your life, actually. You yeah. just do, do what you're told. So it might appear on the outside that, oh, they're dealing with it great, but they can't leave what is happening, you know? They can't walk away from it. So, it, it, of course, no. it appears and, like and, and lots of children, which is appropriate, by the way, like de developmentally, they don't have the emotional fluency to interweave all these experiences with narrative and say, pull up a chair now till I tell you about the overwhelming and perturbing experience I've had and the effect it's having on my social-emotional well-being today. They're not, but you know what they will do really effectively is they will communicate that distress and dysregulation behaviorally and they will do say and act in ways that is not their attempt to be difficult for us but moreover their attempt to communicate I'm having a difficulty and I don't know else and our system is so reactive to stop that behavior that you'll end up playing behavior whack-a-mole you'll stop one behavior and up pops another and you go great I'll deal with that one and up pops another because what hasn't been addressed is the underpinning emotional and physical dysregulation that is saying I have to find a way out I'm not at a stage where I can speak this so I'm going to let you know so please stop taking away my symptom I need that 
That is how I'm communicating. So I think we have to come at children's behavioral correction approach that has to be done within emotional connection. You know, you hear that line connection before correction. If I have that connection, and I mean parents certainly, but not just parents, you know, I think teachers are incredibly important adults in the lives of children. I think we have studies that show learning outcomes can be predicted from close emotional connections in the classroom. I think it should be encouraged that there be emotional connection between teachers and students because they spend so much of their day in the presence of and under the influence of teachers. I think teachers are very special people, by the way. I think I don't do it. You know, it's not a job I do. And I'm like, hats off. You know, I really admire that. But I also think if you're in that position, don't you need minding and resourcing too? And we often hear in this narrative that, oh, the schools will do that. Oh, give that to the teachers to, oh, should they could teach them that too. And they, oh, while they're at it, let them cover this other little bit of life skill. And you're like, they also have a curriculum to do. And, and it's too much. And I think when everything gets to the too much level, children will show us behaviorally, but so do we adults show it behaviorally. We will have our less than fine moments. We'll snap. We'll get a bit crabby. Um, we'll maybe get a bit more than crabby and get aggressive and, or we'll shut down. You know, we'll go into a place where it's like, I give up. I just can't do this anymore. These are behavioral expressions of emotional overwhelm or dysregulation that we're also struggling to deal with. So this isn't something that is exclusively in the realm of childhood. But as children, we're learning the capacity to self-regulate. As adults, we are expected or assumed we have that capacity. And we only have it as adults if we got to develop it as children. So if we reached adulthood without having that route to developing it, then I think that's a big ask of a lot of grown-ups too. And it's never too late. I'm an eternal optimist with all of this. I'm like, it's never too late. You can always go back and, you know, do recovery and repair. But it's certainly not straightforward and easy, especially the older we get, because think of like an onion, you know, we've got all these layers of defenses that we've developed and put in place, which have been really smart strategies to keep us functioning in the world and keep us upright. And now you're going, I really should deal with the core issue here, but we can't just go straight into it. You've got to go slowly, respectfully dismantling defenses so that that's the resourcing that gives us the resilience to go to those difficult places. Yeah, sure. And I suppose a lot of the um, behavioral ways of mm. um, showing that we're having these experiences um, are really normalized by society, right? So, yeah. you know, I might be behaving in a certain way, but that's okay because when I tell my friends about it, they all say, oh yeah, or, you know, I snapped at my kids and oh, yeah, I argue with my wife and oh yeah, I have too many beers on a Friday or whatever it is, how yeah, people are, are coping. Because it's also normalized, we often don't really need that we realize that we need to be a bit more inquisitive and sort of say, well, hang on a minute. How normal is this? Why am I doing this? Why mm. is this? You know, when it's normalized, we kind of think, well, everyone's at it. I must be okay. Right. And it becomes that kind of getting comfortable being uncomfortable because the reason we mention it is because we have an icky feeling about it. It's like, oh, I did this. And I at the core of it is I really wish I didn't. And I think I really wish I didn't can be very transformative in this because it begs the question, well, how do you wish you had done it? How do you wish you handled that? How do you wish you did say it? And what about going back to that person, be it your partner, your parent, your child and saying, 
I'm really sorry that my feelings got loud and popped out like that. I wish it hadn't. Here's how I wish I had done it. Can I get a do-over? Can I try it again? And do it the way you did, because I think how you wish it was can be an opportunity for emotional repair and going back and owning what we did, not going, excusing it and minimizing, oh, well, that'll be the beers that I had on Friday. So I'm not responsible for that. That's not what this is. It's saying I am absolutely responsible for that. And I wish I hadn't done it. And I always think, you know, in my conversations, because I do so much parent-child relationship work and strengthening and enhancing that relationship is, you know, someone might go, do you know what? I was like this as a kid and it did me no harm. My parents were so much tougher than I am and I'm fine. And you're like, yeah, that's that may well be true. But how do you wish you had been responded to as a child? And what difference would that have made in the moment? And how might that have reflected on you now? Maybe that's the starting point, that we could be the parent for our child that we wish we'd had the response of in those moments of children being children, you know, making mistakes and being clumsy and being loud and being all the things that are part of childhood. And, going, you know, I always think, Tom, that by the time that we react to our children and what they're doing or saying or not doing, you know, whatever it might be. By the time we react, it actually isn't because of what they're doing or saying. It's because of what's getting activated in us by them doing and saying it. So if we can go, and it isn't easy, to that place of activation, why does this affect me in this way? Then we have an opportunity to develop an understanding. So the next time that happens, actually, it won't activate me. And when it doesn't activate me, I will respond from a calmer, more connected place, which will in turn land differently on my child and address the behavior at hand. So I think so much of parenting is actually parenting our inner selves. It's going inwards to parent outwards, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. You know, one of the things, and we've kind of already started down that road already, but, uh, you know, a lot of the people that I speak to for this podcast and um, around it with the different things that I do a lot of mental health issues, whether it's a patch of sort of poor mental health or whether it's something that slides more towards mental illness. So much of it is about our emotions and our feelings and how we see ourselves, you know, our identity in the world. And obviously we start to understand these things and learn about them as kids. Right. And, you know, I, I wanted to chat to you a little bit about that, that journey and maybe some things we can do, um, as parents to kind of help that process, help kids to get curious about their emotions and be able to um, yeah. talk about them. But it's interesting you mentioned it there because I was going through one of your um, books the other day. And one of the first things that jumped out of me was the parental self audit that you mentioned. Yeah. And that kind mm-hmm. of feels like that's uh, that's where we're starting to, to it go. Is. Yeah, it, but... It's the starting point, isn't it? But not always the easiest point, sometimes the most difficult point where we're going to see greatest resistance because it's asking you to go back into... And it's not about a fact-finding mission about, well, how were you parented? Because, you know, you could line up my, me and all of my siblings and ask us the same question of the same parents and we'd give you different answers because it's how we experienced being parented. That's the influence. And it is really about trying to get curious about that because I think sometimes how we know we've reached adulthood is that we recognize our parents have limitations and we love them anyway. And it's like, yep, I'm an adult. That's it. I know that they have limitations. I know with 
best effort they would have done the best that they could. It doesn't mean it was always right for me. And I'm okay with that. So I think there is a journey in our life that very young children can be very much in love with their parents. They think we know everything. They'll bring us all their questions. Supremely confident, you'll know. And whatever you tell me, I'll believe you. And then in middle childhood, they get a little more cynical. They'd still ask us their questions, but they'll double check it on Google or something. They'll be like, mm, I might just ask someone else. You know, they're going to a little more cynical about us going, you might not know everything, actually. And then in adolescence, they're just completely underwhelmed with us. Like we haven't a clue. Not a clue. You've never been an adolescent. And in lots of ways, we haven't been an adolescent as it is now. And it is a very different experience. And then it is it is supposed to come full circle so that you go, yeah, we're all a bit limited, but, you know, we do the best that we can. And if I can start from there, I have an empathic connection. Et voila, we're an adult. That doesn't just happen because if I'm carrying forward gaps and unprocessed experiences and confusion from my childhood, things that I'm like, yeah, it happened. I've never really understood it. And I've never had the opportunity to take that implicit memory I'm holding and interweave it with narrative to make it something I'm consciously aware of. I kind of walk through life with, you know, it's like having a pebble in your shoe. I can still walk, but it would be a lot more comfortable if I shook it out. And eventually that pebble's going to give me a blister and that's going to cause me a problem. So I always think of it like that. It, it, there are things in all of our lives that may not have derailed us, but they're giving us a bit of an, a discomfort to carry with us. And that can get heavier as we move through life. And there is no better way to discover your unresolved issues than to become a parent. Because your children are of you and they will bring stuff you didn't even know you were carrying in there, screaming to the surface, usually at an inopportune moment when it will pop out your mouth. And you'd be like, oh, what was that? Where did that come from? And I'd be like, oh, catch that question when it happens. And it might be in the moment, but it might be later over a cup of tea when you're going, where did that come from? Why did that affect me that way? And when we ask questions of ourselves, be sure to answer them. Even if the answer is, I don't know, but I'd sure like to find out, you know, so where can I do that? So the parental self-audit is a journey of trying to shine a light on how did we experience being parented? What effect, good, bad, and different has that had on us? And how is that now influencing, informing, or perhaps inhibiting how we parent our own children? And, you know, the question then is, are you okay with that? And if your answer is yes, it's mostly right most of the time. Good enough is good enough. I'm okay. Okay is okay. But if you're sitting there going, no, this is a problem. And now that I've got that light bulb moment, I can't turn it off. It's there. Then go and get that addressed. You deserve the opportunity to work through issues that you're carrying in the back of your unconscious there. You, you deserve the opportunity to interweave that with narrative, to have somebody bear witness to it for you so that it informs how you live and it doesn't impede how you live. Yeah, sure. And it, it's scary at first, right? Because particularly with stuff Super. around parenting, no one wants to admit that they've made a mistake. You know, sure. like one mistake doesn't make you a bad parent, right? But we feel like it does. And yeah. so no one wants to kind of like look at their own behavior in in that moment. But it 
it's so valuable to do. And I kind of, I see it as myself as like sort of like a, a compassionate inquiry wow. and I now really enjoy it. And it was scary. You know, I've yeah. been in therapy a long time. I initially went to therapy because I was in crisis. Right. So I went for very, yeah. very different reasons. Um, but now I kind of go because I just really enjoy it. I really enjoy yeah. kind of like, you know, feeling something and then kind of yeah. like, well, I'm just, oh, I'll, I'll bank that and I'll, I'll unpick that next time I'm in with Trish, you know, like it, it's, uh, Absolutely. It, it and it's a, a relationship, even the fact that you'd say, I'll do that with Trish you know you know that's a relationship and that's a relational connection and that's exactly we correct these behaviors within connections and therapy can be a great place for that because for the therapeutic hour that you are there it is just about you it's not about you know you're talking and someone's listening but they're really just waiting for you to take a breath so they can interject with their part of the conversation it's not like that so it is quite a privileged space to be in where you can emotionally exhale and there's no judgment and there's no one going why would you say that it's okay why would you say that let's think about that together let's catch those micro moments that all too often pass us by in our day and we go "Ooh, what was that push it aside move on it's saying oh no don't move let's let's catch that and i think that's something that and i look i i am a psychotherapist and i know predominantly people come in crisis but when the crisis abates or whatever might happen around that it's when you stay in therapy that the other stuff, the the personal narrative get that you're like, well, it was never really an issue, but sure now that I'm here, <laughs> pull up a chair, I may as well tell you. And that's when I think we make all kinds of associations and connections internally. And then once we do that internally, we begin to make it with people outside of us within the world around us. And, you know, people often say, and we hear this in popular culture quite a lot, you need to go to therapy. And I think it can make it feel like there's something of, oh, it's a consequence for my bad behavior. I need to go and do that. I need to sit on time out and therapy there. But actually, I would like to reframe that in terms of you deserve to go to therapy. You deserve a space that is just for you and someone who is 100% present for you in the moment and attuned to you, what you're saying, but also how you're saying it. And, you know, in therapy, sometimes there isn't a saying. There's simply a being with each other and there's a silence, but that's not nothing. There's a whole lot of something that can go on in those silences. Because I've I've had people go, oh, God, I dread the awkward pauses. And I'm like, why are they awkward? When did we when did we stop taking a pause in our lives and go, pausing is awkward? And I think it may be a reflection on the frenetic pacing of how we all function now. Actually, our psyche craves the pause. It craves, I'm going to use the word boredom because it's, I'm on a campaign to reclaim that as a positive thing. I think when our children say, I'm bored, it can send a chill down our spines. You're bored? Oh my gosh, let's do something. Let's do this. Actually, it should be fabulous. You're bored. I can't wait to see what you come up with because out of boredom comes desire. So having a space where you can sit and say, I have nothing to talk about in therapy today. Talk about that. Talk about what it feels like to have nothing to talk about. Yeah. Sit in that, sit in that feeling of there's nothing really present on my mind. I'm in a different space within myself. And maybe I could curiously explore that and what it feels like. So I think, you know, if if it's something you're going, I've thought about therapy, I've gotten close to it, I've made the calls, but I've never, I've had one appointment, but I couldn't really keep going. Don't close that door. You deserve that space. 
Yeah, it's a really nice way to to see it, you know, and it doesn't have to be. Um, I always thought therapy would be um, my only like a lot of our reference points are from the media. Right. So I thought it was yeah. going to be like Goodwill hunting. And yeah. I was going to go and he was going to push me and tell me it's not my fault. We were going to have a hug and then Big hug and, be fine. The, <laughs> and here I am like five years later, still, <laughs> still unpicking this A mere stuff. five years. <laughs> a mere yeah. five years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, some of the, some of my biggest benefits from therapy have been tiny little things. Just yeah. learning to rephrase a simple thing, take something that I always thought was true, that was me, and then find out it's not. And it's just like unlocked yeah. a whole part of me that I didn't think I had access to or didn't know was there. You know, it's not always as complicated as people think, right? It's just a little, uh, yeah, just a little explore. So if we're working on that, Joanna, yeah. we're, work we're doing our self-audit, you know, we're kind of yeah. checking in with ourselves on that front. How can we start to kind of... um when it comes to emotions and feelings in particular, I think, because these are stuff, these are things that really affect our mental health later on when we yeah. can't talk about them, when we can't yeah. fe feel them. I had to learn as an adult to feel yeah. my feelings um, because I could, I could intellectualize feelings. I knew how I was supposed to react in certain situations. So I could do that. But underneath that, there was, there was nothing. And when I first started therapy, my answer to everything was, I don't know. <laughs> Where'd you feel yeah. it? I don't know. What does it feel like? I don't know. I didn't have those sorts of words. And I, I, it's something I always, I'm really curious with my own kids because I'd like to help them along that yeah. path. But at the same time, they're also kids. And I don't want to be like, kind of like really yeah. murky in the waters and stirring things up and turning them into a science experiment. Right. So and we don't um, want the existential crisis too early in no, life. Yeah. No, yeah. For no, sure. It, for yeah. sure. But yeah. that's so important because having emotional fluency and doesn't that sound lovely? Oh, I'd love my kids to be emotionally fluent. I'd love to have that myself. That'd be lovely. But actually it's not just something we can choose. We have to be aware of it. And then we look at, well, how do I do that? And with children, and obviously you mentioned the parental self audit in, in one of the books, like my books are 15 minute parenting. It's very, I mean, much as I'd love to be selling, you can do it in 15 minutes a day. I could retire on that. But it's more about, you know, making sure that we ring fence pocket of time where we are no distractions, fully mindfully present to play with our children. And even anyone listening hear me say that it be aware of how it felt in your body when I said play with your children. You know, what do we understand by the word play? Is it the box of Legos or the box of toys, because actually for me, it's a state of mind. Play is a way of being. It's a way of thinking and feeling. And play is a language for children. It's not just something nice that they do. It's how they express what has happened in their day. It's how they take experiences and they make meaning of them and they work it out and they try to come up with alternative outcomes. If you want to know how your child's day was, and we all know when you ask them, they're like, don't know, go on. You get sound effects. You don't get an answer to that because actually the Q&A part of their day has is done. They're done being interviewed. <laughs> um, but actually, if you want to know how it was, look at their play on the floor. It's That's where it's happening. And if you want to be part of that conversation, play with them. When our children say to us, play with me, will you play with me? Will you do? They're not trying to drag out of us and to add in a child saying play with me is their way of saying connect with me. Let me share what's happened in my day with you. And if we learn to hear that in a way 
that's where the emotional fluency and expression comes from because we can do a lot of reflection with that. Now, don't be psychobabbling your child's play because they'll just be like, I've changed my mind, get out. <laughs> don't want to play with you anymore. You're ruining the game with all your words because we're very wordy as adults. And don't be worried if you're like, oh, play is not my thing. They're an expert in it. You can step back and follow their lead. If you don't know what one dino from the other, you're living with a mini paleontologist who will talk you through all of that. And you can just follow their cues. And in the play, when they're having a, the dinos or the trains are rowing with each other, you have an opportunity to model more pro-social responses. Going, oh, that hurts my feelings. I feel really sad when that happens. And then, or if their little one is hurt or crying, go, oh, we need to stop the game and take care of you because you deserve to be taken care of, whatever it might be. And you have those opportunities. And I think play for me is something, you know, I talk about it in parenting, but I also have a book about it in the lives of adults. I, I really think that we never stop needing to play. We do stop playing but we never stop needing it. So just as you're investing in your child with that, you're actually investing in yourself as well. Because when I can talk to my child in their language of play, and I can do that predictably in a calm, consistent, you know, connected way every day, even 15 minutes every day, and my child can anticipate with certainty you might be busy now, but I know you're going to come to me for our playtime. They're less likely to pull out of you and drag because they're secure in that connection with you. So that in itself is investing in emotional expression. The other thing is, is that we allow emotional expression in the play that we're not trying to edit and clean it up and say, oh, that's a bit rough now. Or, oh, is that kind to leave out one day? And we're not trying to use everything as a teach moment because actually maybe be, your child isn't actually doing that in the playground, but they're wondering what would it be like to do it in the safety of play? Because play and the dark themes in play, because anyone who's watched a child play, you're having a picnic and then aliens land and blow everyone up and everyone's dead. And then they come back to life and we move on for the next bit of the game. They play with dark themes because actually it's a way of getting close proximity to danger in life in a very safe way. It's why we also, as adults, watch scary movies, by the way. We like to be a bit scared while eating our popcorn and going home to our safe lives because we got close to darkness, but it's not happening to us. So it's a safe way to get, ooh, what would that be like? And to give that to ourselves. As they're getting a bit older, I would use things like parts language. So when, you know, my child is having a moment, you know, where things are really big and big and loud and lots of frustration, I'll be saying, that's your frustrated part. Your frustrated part is having a really hard time right now. And we'll try to make some meaning of it. OK, and it might be through some kind of a boundary, like acknowledge the feeling, you know, that's your frustrated part. And you're frustrated because you really wanted to go to the park and it's lashing rain and we're not doing that today. That's it. I've acknowledged the feeling, but then I want to communicate a limit in a safe way. It's not OK to kick or hit. That's not something we do in this family. OK, I always say in this family because I don't know what goes on in other families, but in this family, we're not going to kick and hit. And then I target the alternative behavior. The next time you feel frustrated and your feet want to kick and your hands want to hit, you know what you can do? You can hit that cushion over there. I will blow up a big balloon. I will hold it out here and you can punch it like a punch bag till all those frustrated feelings go. So when we can use that ACT, that actually acknowledge my feeling. You're giving back to me 
the reason you're doing this is because you have a feeling. The name of that feeling is, and it's because you can't have what you want. Then you communicate, you can't do that. This is not okay. We won't shout. We won't hit. We won't throw. We won't whatever it is that's going on. But don't just leave me with that. And that's what we too often do in correcting behavior with our children. I know you're angry, but cut it out and we leave it. You got to target the alternative. Tell me what I can do with these feelings, because then the next time I feel like this, I have an alternative. I know what is safe to do with my feelings. And I also know that all feelings are welcome here. I don't have to be good to be connected to you. I don't have to behave a certain way. I don't have to earn that connection. You can say, I'll welcome it all. I'm going to help you organize the difficult stuff, but I will help you make meaning of it. And I think that is a simple way. It also is very good for us when, you know, we're all right, kick me one more time and the finger comes out and the tone has changed and I am not remotely playful or connected now because I'm saying I am bigger than you. I am in charge of you. And as soon as I'm doing that, I am not in control because as soon as we say I'm in charge, no, you're not. Because if you were in charge, you wouldn't have to say it. You would just do it. So when we do the communication, that's playful connection. And then as they're growing up, you keep saying that's your frustrated part. But you know what? You also have a happy part and a sad part, an excited part. Where do those parts live? You said, you know, um, they're about having feelings and not knowing where they are. And that's a really lovely activity to do with young children. You, you five and six year olds is to say, OK, what is this feeling? What color would it be? What shape would it would it be heavy? Would it be light? Are the edges smooth? Are they rough? Where does it live in your body? Oh, that's it. So you have purple triangles in your tummy. So the next time you feel like that, you could say, hey, purple triangles. You know, and I've worked with a, a child who would say that to me. They were, she did a certain color triangle in her head and she'd say, look, Sometimes those triangles pop in my head and, you know, no good comes from those triangles. <laughs> it's like, you need to say when the triangles are there before the no good comes of them <laughs> and trying to give us that internal brake light. You can lie a child down on a, do you know, like an art roll of paper or a roll of wallpaper lining is fine because it's cheap. It's in hardware stores. It's accessible. Roll it out, lie your child down. So cut out the page child length and with a, a black Sharpie, just draw all around their body. And then get them up. It's a literal outline of themselves there. And you have a range of colors. And you will just say, what color is angry? What color is sad? What color is happy? What color is excited? What color is nervous or uh-oh? Or, and a range of feelings. And then you might say to them, is there any feeling I missed to see is there one they're holding that you haven't considered? Now, you don't judge their colors. If they say angry is yellow and excited is red, and you're not going to go, do you not think red's a more angry color? You know, you're not going to do that. You accept what they have. And then you hand them one color at a time and you say, color in your body where that feeling lives. And more than one feeling can live in the same place. And it lets us know, is your child holding a lot in the head? Because if they're emotionally overwhelmed, might they be forgetting, apparently not listening to you, prone to feeling kind of lethargic and flat? Are they holding things around their chest area or in their tummies? Where are they holding these feelings? And as they color them in, you can take it a step further by saying, tell me a time when you felt this, a story. What's the story of this? And that's a relational episode. So now I'm taking the feeling, I'm visualizing it, I'm locating it somewhere physically, and I'm interweaving it with that relational episode. And I'm building that emotional landscape and language for myself 
And all it is, is play. You know, I'm just playing my way through it. With older children, I might take a stack of Jenga blocks and color them. You can buy colored ones, I think, of course, but you could also just color them in. It's fine with chalk or whatever and assign a feeling to each color. And when you push that color out, you tell a time about that feeling or you can write incomplete sentences with a sharpie on them something that makes me excited is dot 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 something that scares me something that makes me angry and you finish the sentences as you go through it so I there's lots of ways that we play with feelings but when I have that experience of playing with emotional language and stretching myself to know that I am not the angry child in this family. I am a child who is sometimes angry, but I also have other emotional parts. I have a happy partner. When I'm activated, I have a greater capacity to go, I can find my happy part. I remember a time when I was happy and I know where that lives in my body. That's about regulation. So I think you start young and you keep right the way up to teenagers, right the way through it. Mm. I think we have to keep talking about what's the story of this feeling, even as adults, you know, when you I'm going to say when, you know, when you're in a situation, you're really crossed, maybe with your partner, maybe with a colleague, maybe with somebody else. And they're like, is everything okay?" And you're like, yeah. Nothing about me is okay with this. (laughs) Uh, Nothing. And maybe when we look at our partner, you're like. I mean, I don't really want to rock this boat because I'm going to take you at your word, but I do recognize it's not true. It might be, okay, because the story I'm telling myself is that you're upset. And when I can see you're upset and cross because the way your eyebrow, your referral, the story I'm telling myself is I've done something. Because that gives the other person an opportunity to go, no, you haven't done it. Something happened in work and I'm really cross about it. Because too often the row comes from that miscommunication. We personalize things. Oh, you're annoyed at me. And I'll go very quickly to something that makes sense that you could be annoyed at me about. And then I get counter annoyed that you're annoyed at me about something like that. And now we're having a kind of bickery row, but neither of us are quite sure what happened there. Because actually in that situation, in reading each other's body language, we told each other a story. We told ourselves a story that made sense to us. Sometimes sharing that and saying, the story I'm telling myself right now is that you're cross with me. Am I right? Then they might go, yes. (laughs) So brace yourself for that as well. (laughs) But they might go, no, this this isn't about you at all. Why would you think? No, this is what happened. And they're just carrying something from somewhere else. So I think that need to emotionally express it doesn't just stop now that you've now that you're not a child and you have some degree of control over your emotions we never need to go there again quite the opposite yeah very much so i mean the whole um you know drawing around the mm. shape of the child and coloring in i, I could do with that myself you know that would Absolutely. that would work wonders for me when you were saying that that would really you know like yeah. that appeals to how i how i communicate how i like to learn stuff so i'm, I'm gonna it, yeah, it is and you know play. if you've just to say because at a certain age sometimes children develop a kind of a body consciousness and a self-aware and they won't want to lie down and have their body drawn around you can just do an outline of a body or cut out person shapes as if you were doing bunting, you know, just cut out person shapes and you could do it in that way as well. It's a deeper personal experience when it's your own outline, but you can adapt this. So don't let somebody go, I don't want to lie down, mean, well, I can't do it now. And you know, it can be interesting because our emotional, our emotions will move and change as we do. 
is hang that up somewhere. Not somewhere I see it all the time because that could be very confronting and overwhelming. Somewhere like the inside of a wardrobe door. I can see it when I want and I cannot see it. And repeat it, maybe three months time. And see, are they the same? Are they different? And you can do these over a pattern of time. And it's quite a nice little activity to do. Mm, it sounds so um so like such a powerful tool as well to mm. be able to like vocalize these things and i get asked a lot about like my own experience and people say why didn't you ask ask for help and i say well i didn't know what was happening you know i knew that something was really wrong but i didn't know what was happening and i loved what you said then as well about the the communication the way to open the communication doors with like your partner over that type yeah. of situation because in the mental health conversation everything that it revolves around talking and of course it's yeah. really important to talk but again, people used to say to me, why didn't you talk? And I'd say, well, I didn't have the words. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know when or how or where. You know, it's like it's it's so much more than just talking, right? So be able Absolutely. to have, have tools to open those doors, whether it's for, for me to talk or whether it's for me to support someone to talk. You know? And do you know what it can be as well is sometimes our capacity to talk about it is the outcome of the intervention, not the starting point. Because actually finding the words to say it that's the part I need help with. So often, you know, you know, you see a lot of people doing the hand model of the brain. But if you flip your lid, you know, when you've really like lost it and you flip your lid, the neocortex, the part of the brain where we do that lovely talking and thinking and rationalizing and making meaning and connect is offline. And what's calling the shots is that pulsating amygdala emotional area, fight, flight, freeze, fall. And, you know, in that situation, we all love being right, you know, about how we're feeling. So we'll find evidence. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> we're like forensically gathering the evidence to justify how we're feeling. And if that continues, you'll start seeing a more embodied somatic impact of that in that lower region of the brain, that acceptance of coordination um motor regulation arousal hot cold hungry full tired energetic all of those pieces are now coming offline and getting dysregulated and in extreme trauma situation i'll come down into the brainstem where you know what i'm just trying to stay alive heart rate blood pressure breathing now if i'm down here and you say pull up a chair and tell me about the no good terrible very bad thing that's been happening in your life i don't know is a very legitimate honest answer because I don't know how to do that. I wish I could do that for you. It's a story I haven't even told myself. So I definitely can't give it to you. So maybe we do need to come at this through a more sensory input, a more connection building, playful connection that brings the parts of the brain back online so that I can tell you about that. So very often in the work that I do, I do a lot of attachment re repair and trauma recovery work. And as I said, a lot of relational work, parent, ch parent, child work, right the way up to young adulthood. I'm not asking you to sit there and tell me the thing. In fact, sometimes in my work, I said, I'm not going to hear that story. That story might not come here because we're going to do it. And in doing it, the story is there. It's just not there in words. So we have to learn to listen to our prosodic vocalizations. How do you sigh? How are you making those sounds? What are the phonemes that kind of... So much is communicated in that and I haven't told you a word. You know, if I'm sitting there and I'm like this and I have my coat on or I have the hood up and I'm like, I am ready to go. I'm not really here yet. I'm letting you know a lot of information in that, but I haven't told you anything. And I think we do need to get better at that, that before I even know myself, I'll show you because it's right beside me, actually. So I'm going to 
show you that I do practice what I preach. This is like a, it's just a freezer bag and it has all my little play break bits. There's little Lego blocks. There's a Play-Doh, there's bubbles. This is just, um, it's a postcard book that it has a little paint palette at the end so I can do a little bit of painting or drawing. There's a doodle notebook and I have some eye stickers because there isn't a PDF document on the world that isn't made more interesting with sticky eyes on it. Um, and sometimes when you've been staring at the one page for till the words are swimming, it's time to get a little creative with it. So when I'm, and I have some writing deadlines and things like that, and I'm there and I'm going, pretty sure I've already said that and I can't get my concentration. I will take five, 10, maybe 15 minutes, but even five minutes of a play break. I'll literally build some Lego. I will doodle a little picture. I will just sit here thinking while I pull and roll and manipulate Play-Doh. And I will come at that document and be way more productive for that five minute break. So I think we need to reframe a play break. We're not dossing. We're not skiving off. We're actually investing in ourselves. Um, you mentioned the word compassion, which I think is such a beautiful word, but it's like taking a compassion pause. You know, have I brought compassionate awareness to my thinking today, to my emotional state, to my physical state? And if not, can I do that? Can I take a break and go, how, where's my thinking at? What's the, what are the words running around in my head? Emotionally, where am I at? Scanning your body, where am I holding that? And physically, what's happening? I've been sitting here, I'm a bit hunched. I need to, do you know what? I need to get up and move. Because if you catch those throughout your day, that takes one minute or less. Then you're not getting home holding a whole day of that. And, and your child goes, play with me. And you're like, you know, don't look at me. Um, because that's the story of how that happens. So if we want to invest in, you know, wellness and the workplace is such a buzzword as well. What does that mean? And what does it look like for you? building in play breaks in our life, be that in work, be that at home. When you have the cup of coffee, don't drink it, you know, in the way that you're just trying to inhale the caffeine so it scalds you and you're like, oh, hot, yep, very hot. And you keep going, but sit, give yourself five, 10 minutes to have a cup of coffee because that's taking that break and those micro moments of joy into your life. Yeah, definitely. I think those those small little moments as well is an aspect of, um self-care that we don't really yeah. think about right to sit Absolutely. with your coffee and feel how nice it is to have a warm brew in your hands yeah. and smell yeah. coffee because it smells amazing and just yeah. take that second to you know rather than you say rather to like gulp it down and move on to the next exactly. thing and um, when you like talk about play with grown-ups mm. um do you get a lot of um kickback right because being a grown-up is seen as something that's not supposed to be fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of thinking more along the lines, I'm looking at this more through the lens of like men's mental health, right? But I think it applies to everybody. But um, something that's really common in men in that in that age bracket with all the horrible statistics around suicide and stuff is a lot of men in that age bracket have moved so far away from doing absolutely anything that's like creative or fun yeah. or interested or differently. And that plays a big part in that particular demographic. But I think, like I say, I think it's relevant to everyone. Okay. But do you, when you suggest like say the word play to a to a parent or something do you immediately see them sort of like well I couldn't possibly do that you know like absolutely when I wrote my first book I think it was 2017 and I put a section in it about really small section about parents 
playing with each other not play with an intimate agenda that's fine but that wasn't what I was talking about I was talking about just play you're doing the dishes make it a sports commentary you're doing this do and I remember an interview saying to me I mean I get it Joanna I get it but I cringe I cringe well a few years later five years after that I get an entire book on play for adults commissioned. We want to know about this. And I'm like, okay, a few years ago, people were like, cringe. I don't want to talk about that. So absolutely. But there is more openness now. And I do wonder about the pandemic in that because very quickly in lockdown, particularly the early lockdowns, when it was all a bit novel and we weren't sure what this was going to be in short, it'll just be six weeks. But everybody was, you know, growing sourdough starter and making banana bread millions of different ways and all kinds of things going on with that. What was that if not playing, teaching themselves the piano on YouTube or whatever it might be, but it was play. We were playing. So I actually think the appetite for play in our lives changed. And you're right, because play is relegated to the realm of childhood and that it has no business in our important busy adult lives. But play at its core is about connection and it is about flexibility and adaptability. And the people who managed the pandemic restrictions greatest and quickest were those who were flexible and adaptable to a very quickly and quite vaguely, you know, we don't know how long this will go on changing and finding ways to manage that arousal level. So actually, I do think there is a changed appetite and openness towards play now that maybe wasn't there. But now I'm going into organizations and companies and I'm delivering play workshops and we're doing over under with balloons and breath control, but we're doing it through bubbles and we're doing, and yes, 100% people are like, she's not serious, right? She's, and I'm like, oh, I'm like really serious. Like we're definitely going to do this. And two minutes in, it's like strategies, come on, let's go. And everybody gets really into it. So I do think it has changed. I think it's, it needs to continue changing, but I also think it comes down to what I said at the beginning about how we define play. That if you think she wants us to do finger painting and to play with action men. That's legitimate, by the way. If that's your type of play, you do you. But there are many different ways of playing. If you do Wordle or Sudoku or that's intellectual play. If you have a tag rugby team or you meet up to do some kind of a group oriented activity, that's play. If you're somebody who likes you know, whimsical, free flow. Like, I just want to go and be silly. That's play, but it's all play is the point. So actually it is about establishing your play history. You know, was play encouraged for you as a child? Did you have grown-ups who were like, yay, that's great and keep going? Or how quickly in your life did grown-ups begin to go, stop it, that's grow up. You're a big boy now or you're a big girl now or what a big kid, whatever it is. And you got big kidded and you were like, oh, I, I have to leave the play. That has no business for me anymore. We have a play history. It informs our play present. And we can say, I'm happy with that or no, I wish that was different. And we can find more ways to be playful. And I'm not asking everybody to become a children's TV presenter with this. You know, let's pace ourselves. If Don't go to the part of this where you're like, I definitely couldn't do that. I'll start there. Like that, nothing goes well when we start at the path of greatest resistance. But find something you could do 
and then change it up. Like sometimes I think reroute to reboot is a good activity as adults. Go a different way to work or to wherever you go every day. Flip your journey. Don't use your Google map. Allow yourself to get a little bit lost and feel what that feels like. Or don't put earphones in podcasts, except this one. You can listen to this one. But don't, you know, allow yourself to hear the sounds on the street, to make eye contact with people, to have new experiences. That's a more playful state of mind. As soon as you're in a situation and you're like, oh, this is a problem. I wonder if we tried and could we, and you know what could work here? That's a playful state of mind. So actually, I think we're all much more playful than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah, very much so. I think it's like an, an innate human thing, yeah. you know, um, something I've been working with uh, my therapist on recently is um, she always says that like at the moment, uh, mindfulness is really, really fashionable and it's, yeah. you know, it's great for a lot of people. And she said, like, she's recommended for me. She said, don't try mindfulness, go for mindlessness. You know, go for more things where you just kind of like drift away. And um, last summer I started taking drum lessons and it's Amazing. been the it's been the, the single best thing for my mental health that I've done. You know, I can lose of myself on is. that on that drum kit for um for ages. And, you know, it's something that I can't monetize. I'm under no yep. illusions that I'm suddenly going to be, you know, in a band or something like that. I can just sit in my spare room and bang these drums and it's glorious. It's so much fun. But and it's, it's rhythm and synchrony, isn't it? And rhythm and synchrony trigger the parts of our brain associated with emotional regulation. It's quite literally getting back in sync, you know, so that's a super activity and outlet to do because there's that release and there's so much proprioceptive input in a sensory way and also that auditory piece there's a whole lot going on with drums that's a, that's a superb activity to do and you're right doing things that you don't have to be good at I took an art class I am under no and this isn't false modesty like I really am not gifted in that area this is not where my I have skills they are not in the field of art you know but I like it I like doing it. I like having a canvas and smearing paint and blending colors and smudging with your hand and brushes. I, I like having no agenda because I'm not actually trying to produce something to hang on a wall. That's not what I'm seeking here. I don't want to do something I can say, look what I did. I just want to do it. And actually finding something I'm not good at, but I enjoy anyway, has been incredibly therapeutic. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think my webcam has gone absolutely berserk. I don't know if you're. Getting oh, I can that see it. Your, yeah, you're yeah, doing. You're doing like this I'm... like nodding, nodding dog yeah. thing at me. I'm like, <laughs> like I'm... super agreement. <laughs> yeah, I really love what you're saying. Yeah, um, Joanna, I'm really, really conscious of your time. There's okay. one more thing I would like to yeah. ask you about, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I don't want to take up your whole morning, but it's something that comes up for me in these conversations time and time again. And again, it's something I think that really comes into play in childhood and affects us later on. And it's this whole thing of like self-esteem and how we feel about ourselves and how we um, feel our self-worth and how we show up in the world based on that, you know? And I really do a lot of the time for a lot of people, it starts with like this childhood um, experience and it can be a really fine line for a parent to walk, right? Because I want to build self-esteem in my kids. I want them to have a certain amount of confidence and I want them to learn how to like care for themselves and show up in the world. But at the same time, I don't want to kind of raise them thinking that they're they're special right they say that about the millennial generation right that we've all been raised to like think that we're special and the world doesn't think that we're special and that's what's causing a lot of problems so it's kind of like a really like fine line it is yeah yeah i I just wanted to ask a little bit about self-esteem before i go because i've got that's a really i'm glad you did it's a really good it's a such an it's a central question really isn't it 
And, you know, what we know from the research and the Stanford toddler studies really looked at this about self-esteem and what input affects sustained, meaningful input in, in self-esteem. And it's not generalized praise. So when your preschooler or your young child brings you home some kind of chaos on a page, right? And they're like, look what I did. And we go, amazing. That's beautiful. That is the best painting ever. <gasps> I'm going to frame it. I'm going to laser it onto mugs. Every relative is getting one. And we go way big with that. I'm only mildly exaggerating for, to make the point. What your child hears is, oh, to impress and please you, I have to be amazing. I have to do something gallery worthy. I am much less likely to paint a picture after that than if I bring you home and you go, oh, let me look at that. So many colors. And I can see you changed your brush because these strokes are really thick. This is a thick brush, but then you went with this tiny little brush here for these dots. And I can really see that you put so much time and attention into this. That is much more likely to affect meaningful, sustained change in self-esteem because you're noticing, you're feeding back. I can see the care and attention. And what you're doing is focusing on effort over outcome. And when we give praise to our children, it should be specific and it should be, you know, not over the top, not overwhelming. Now, we're not going in and going, hey, kid, listen, I think you could do better. That's really average. You know, this isn't either, it isn't an either or here. It is about going, OK, let's look at it and go and look, I see you're so happy showing this to me. And that lets me know you had a lot of fun doing this and things are always worth doing when you have fun. You know, so you can do it in a way that your praise is specific, it's realistic, and actually you're focusing on the effort that went in, then the outcome. And that then translates to keeping them in team sports longer because actually the, the joy of is participation rather than prowess. And too soon that changes for children. But if we do want to affect self-esteem, it starts there and it continues in that vein. And then it's about having opportunities to practice independence from quite a young age. That could be when the um, food server comes to your table, let your child order for themselves, as opposed to he'll have the cheese toasty and some soup. Let them order, let them look up with somebody they don't know or have a connection with, express what they want, be clear about it. Let them go to the counter and pay and have that small brief exchange, give them opportunities to practice independence where again, you can praise them and also they learn from it. So it's those very tangible, meaningful, and you know what? They're the small things. They're not the huge, big things in life. They're the small things that are peppered right throughout the trajectory of our life. And when we're constantly saying, you got this, you can do it. Use your voice. Why don't you ask for what you want? All of that is self-esteem because later on, then I have, I know I can use my voice in situations. I can handle myself. I can ask a stranger for directions when I get lost. I can say when I need help. And I know all I have to do is give it a go and try my best. And that's enough. That is the recipe for self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. Lovely way of looking at it. So many of these like techniques we've got for like helping our children and guiding our children. Yeah. I think like, well, I can apply that to me. Like there's Absolutely. no, you know, it's not separate, is it? It's, it's not, it's not, not at, all. And at all. It should never feel like that because actually, do you know, it was the British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott um, back in the seventies said, um, anything I say about children can be applied to adults as well. And I think that's a really good rule of thumb because do you know what? 
that child part of ourselves is still there. We've all been children. And a lot of this is about lessons for life. And it's not like, well, I, I'm the adult and I live the adult life. Of course, there's seriousness in our adult lives. But in terms of our social skills and our social engagement system, it's not all that different. And actually, children take their social emotional behavioral cues from their safe, trusted adults in charge. So if you want your child to behave a certain way, you behave that way and they'll mirror what you do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I worked with a therapist for a long time um, and he had very severe dyslexia. And mm. one of his sons had dyslexia as well. And they had a lot of systems and processes in their life to enable them to kind of like manage life while living with dyslexia. And he used yeah. to say to me, um, we used to talk about these techniques a lot, um, particularly around like slowing my life down and trying to yeah. control when everything was out of control. And he used to say to me, what's good for dyslexics is good for everybody. And totally I love I that. And there were so many techniques that I wouldn't have found if I hadn't have worked with him that now they are literally like the structure of how I get through my yeah. life has been so, and it's the same with like, you know, how we look after our kids so much of it can, we can just, we can parent ourselves almost to some extent. Right. I love that. I love that. And what a gift to ourselves that could be. Very much so. Very much so. Joanna, mm. thank you so much for letting me squeeze that last question in. And thank oh, you so I'm much for, uh, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really, it truly um, has. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, no worries. Thank you for joining me. And I'll put all the links to all the things that you do and all your, um, you know, your website and the books and all that sort of stuff. It'll go in the episode notes so people know where to to find you. But um, I've been yeah, like reading some of your books um, in preparation for this. And uh, yeah, there's just, there's so much there. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. So thank you. Thank you. A big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>